0: The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus' people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered, missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. So let's get into scripture today. We'll be in second Corinthians. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we're, we're wrapping up second Corinthians today, second Corinthians uh, 13. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen. Um, and again, we're, we're kind of wrapping up the entire, uh, look at the, the book of, uh, of second Corinthians and, um, Uh, we're going to see Paul um, saying that he's going to come back to Corinth. It'll actually, I think, be his third trip back there um, to kind of check on them and check on things and see how they're doing and um, talk to them about the letter that he's written them. So uh, let's kind of just jump in here. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, first four verses. He says, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the, the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said, when present the second time, and then no uh, sorry, and although no absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for proof, uh, yeah, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because the power of God directed to you. So again, Paul's just wrapping up and he's like, I'm going to come back for the third time. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to correct everybody who's not living the way that they're supposed to. I guess we would say you're not living in accordance with the gospel, the teachings that I've given you. I'm going to correct those people. I'm going to discipline those people who are trying to lead you astray. People in your churches, uh, people who are coming in claiming to be some kind of an apostle. I'm going to correct them. I'm going to discipline those people because they're uh, promoting a gospel that that benefits them, that gives them some kind of personal gain. Um, It doesn't uh, equip you and encourage you um, to live the the lifestyle of grace um, that's based on the gospel. So he wants them, and he's talked about it a a couple of times here and then throughout the, the book, he really desperately wants them to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants their daily living to be an experience where they sense the the Holy Spirit living in them and living through them. And he wants that for them. And he doesn't want them to live um, that way for show or for boasting. And you have to remember 1 Corinthians, um, in that book when he wrote to them, uh, they were using the gifts, the Holy Spirit gifts that God had given them um, to kind of showboat and to show off and to to brag about whatever giftedness they said they had or they thought they had. Um, they wanted people to see them um, as being special and gifted and unique and all that. Um, and and his, so he's like, listen, I want you to know the, the real power of the Holy Spirit, um, not that stuff that people are doing for show and to, to brag on what they have, because that is what they valued. And, and quite frankly, I think that's what we value a lot from people, um, is people who are wildly gifted or Seem to be wildly capable to do certain things. Um, They valued that in their pastors or in their preachers, the ministers, the the people in their church that were uh, ministering to them. They were thinking, wow, well, he's eloquent or she's attractive or he's got everything that you could want or everything they touch is successful or she's a good businesswoman or wow, that's a really large ministry that they have. We should listen to them because they have all these giftedness. He wants them to understand that there's a power that we can live in, but it's not the same thing as the power that you think about when I say the word power. And this is where the language probably fails us to some degree. We think about power and we think about things that are showy and big and, and um, maybe a little uh, unexplainable, but to the degree that somehow or another it shows you what an amazing person or Christian that I am. Um, and Paul wants them to understand there's a power they can have, and it's a power for purity. That the power that the Holy Spirit has for us is to cause us to live in a pure, pure way, a pure form um, for our thoughts to be purified, for our motivations to be purified, our hearts to be purified and our actions to be purified. So it's a power for purity, uh, a power, a power for our witness that we we would walk out of here and we would go to the the mission field every day, the other six and a half days of the week, and we would have a powerful witness about us um, to other people about who God is. Um, a power that energizes us to persevere in suffering. Because if all we're required to do is to gut it out when things go bad, we're going to quit. And that there's a Holy Spirit power that empowers us to stick it out, to persevere when things are hard. And it's, it's supernatural. And he wants them to know that power um, in their lives, right? He wants them to know there's a power that can overcome the flesh and overcome Satan and overcome temptation, and overcome sin. There's so many of us who live, even as believers, man, we live in this, this constant lie that we are somehow battling a more powerful force or entity than, than we are. And I would just tell you that the Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, lives in you. And he can empower you to overcome your sin. And to overcome your flesh. And to overcome the temptation that you think you can't overcome. Paul wants them to know that power. And that that's the effect that it can have in their lives. It's this strange power. It's this God-kingdom-upside-down kind of power that's not like what we normally think about. It's a power that leads us to humility, to lowering ourselves, to serving other people, to generosity, and to self-sacrifice. That's the, that's the book of 2 Corinthians. That's what he's been trying to help them understand. There is a power that's available for you, but it's not like the power that props you up, that makes everybody think you're incredible, that wants to sing your praises, and quite frankly, builds your ego up. It's a Holy Spirit power that allows you to humble yourself, and to self-sacrifice for other people, and to serve other people, and to be generous to other people. Man, that is supernatural power, isn't it? Because that is not stuff I normally even want to do. much less can find the ability to do. So Paul's like, I'm going to come, I'm going to correct everybody who's off base, right? I'm going to discipline those who are trying to lead you astray because I want you to know this power that God has for you. So if that's the power that God wants us to live in, if that's the kind of life that God wants us to live in, how can we do that if we're not living Like we've been recreated. So, I guess my question here at the beginning is if Paul is saying, I want you to live this powerful life, how can we live in that life? How can we ever hope to have that power in us if we're not even living like we've been recreated? If we're not living like God actually lives in us and He's changed us, therefore, our actions are different or not, how can we possibly know that power that He has for us? So, look in verse 5. Paul gets really practical with where he goes here. So he says, I want you to know this power in your life. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. We're going to spend a long time on this one verse today. And Talking about this test and what it is and probably what it isn't um, so that we all have a clear understanding of it Then we can take the test ourselves. We can apply this self-examination to ourselves So what is this test? All right, here we go And there's so much confusion about this So i'm going to try to be as simple about it as I can then we'll build on it First of all, he is asking you and me to look in our hearts and ask ourselves. Am I really a christian? That is exactly what he's asking you to do today Paul is writing a group of people, and we'll talk about them in a moment, the the Corinthians. He's writing a group of people who are showing up to church on Sundays, some of whom may be trying to be good, some of whom are just totally confused about what Christianity is about at all. And he's asking them to look in their hearts and, and find out, am I really even a Christian? Have I ever truly stepped into faith? And my life is based on who Christ is and what he's done for me on the cross and the power that he has for me. That is exactly what he's asking today. I think there should be at 11, 1050, what is it? 1050 right now, this very moment, there should be an air of discomfort in this room. Some of us sneak in and sneak out of here every week. And we serve here every week and we work hard here every week. And we even love people here every week. But the question remains for you are you in the faith? Are you a Christian? That is most definitely what Paul is asking for us to do, to test ourselves to see whether or not we're even saved. Now, here's the second part of this test, because this is really where, this is the testable part. This is almost like the part that you can evaluate when you're asking yourself that question, am I really a believer? The second thing that I think he's kind of asking us to do, or maybe the the mechanism that he wants us to use to find out whether or not we are believers, is this. Are you walking with a ferocious determination in Jesus Christ? Not are you putzing around with Christianity. Not are you playing around with it. Not are you interested in it. Not does it sound good to you. Not does it sound nice and sweet to you. Paul wants to know, are you ferociously determined to walk like Jesus walked? And that will be the measure that he is going to ask us to use in our lives. And this is not an easy test, I think. Especially for those of us who are church rats. Those of us who grew up in the church. Those of us who are here all the time. We just naturally assume that proximity equals holiness. That somehow by osmosis, because I show up here, because my parents read me bedtime stories and we pray before meals, I must be a Christian. And Paul is absolutely challenging that in us today, and more. So that is the test that he is going to ask us to say. I would also say this. We don't have time to go back to it, but a couple of weeks ago, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and, and 12, Paul uh, talked about comparing ourselves to people. So what they were doing, they were saying, oh, I, I have a greater gift than that person has. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I'm a better speaker than that person is. Therefore, I have to be a believer They're, I go to church more than they go. So I must be a believer. So all these people are comparing themselves to others. Then you have these false teachers coming in and saying, if you don't keep the entire Old Testament, you can't be a Christian. So now they're comparing themselves to each other and how they keep the Old Testament and whether or not they're believing. That's kind of the the gauge that they're using at this point. Um, And Paul says, don't do that. Stop doing that. That's not how you determine uh, the depth of your faith or the genuineness of your faith. The reality of your salvation is by comparing ourselves to others. So if we're not going to compare ourselves to other people, what are we supposed to do? I think this is exactly what we have to do. If we're not going to boast about ourselves, if we're not going to make much of our spiritual accomplishments and achievements, if that's not going to be the basis by which we know whether or not we're believers, the next thing, the only thing that we're really left with, if we're not going to compare ourselves to others, is we have to take some kind of self-administered test. There has to be some objective standard that we can look at and say, that proves, quite frankly, that I am actually a Christian. Paul tells us, don't compare yourselves to other people. So in a few moments when we get into this, and we're we're talking about these testings, these self-examination that he has for us, don't think about the person you're sitting next to, and don't think, thank God they're here today because they need to get this test, okay? The point isn't for you to compare yourself to how somebody else might be doing, or to be so thankful they're here so that they can find out whether or not they're a Christian. It's, It's here, it's you, it's me. It's our asking ourselves this. So we're we're not supposed to do this. We're not supposed to compare ourselves to other people. We're not supposed to compare ourselves to the past. So I don't think Paul's asking you whether or not at some point or another you were fervent about your faith. He's not saying, think about when you were 13 and did you love Jesus? Well, if you did, you must be a believer. He's also not saying... If you trusted, if you loved Jesus when you were 13 and you kind of have fallen a little bit out of that ooey-gooey puppy love thing with Christ, you're probably not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't, don't think about the past. I'm not asking you about the past 20, 15 years ago, last year. I'm not asking you about that. So don't compare yourself to others. Don't compare yourself to the past. Don't compare yourself to your failures and sins. Paul is not looking for perfection. If you don't get 100, that doesn't mean you don't pass this test. Because none of us are going to get a hundred. So he's not asking us to say, Are you perfect? Have you reached a point of sinless perfection? And if you are, you're a believer. He's not saying compare yourself to your failures and your sins. So we got to kind of get rid of all that stuff out of our head because we do tend to use those things as our barometers, our measuring sticks, to ask ourselves a lot of times about our faith. So who is it that is supposed to take this test? Paul's like, examine yourselves, see if you're in the, in the faith. Who is supposed to take this test? I would say this, anyone in this room who thinks that you're a Christian is supposed to take this test. If you have ever told anyone, I, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. If you've ever whispered that to your soul at night, I, I really am a believer. I trust in Christ. I think Paul is telling all of us who have ever had that said about us, Who thinks that they're a believer, take this test. Every Sunday in churches, all across America, and and it's probably all across the world for sure, but my gosh, there's this brand of Christian American, you know, American Christianity that lends itself to us showing up here and thinking that because we showed up, we're Christians. Or we were brought up in a certain background and we're Christians right? Historically, it, within, if we had one church, we had the Catholic faith, it would have been, well, I was baptized as a baby, therefore I'm a Christian. There are people in churches all across America, listen, who are not saved, but they think they are. They walked an aisle when they were seven, or they prayed some prayer when they were 12, and they believe that living in the United States and being in a church building a lot, or being baptized as a baby, or trying really hard to be good, means they're a Christian. D.A. Carson, great author, speaker, writer, says this, there are millions of professing believers in North America today who at some point entered into a shallow commitment to Christianity, but who, if pushed, would be forced to admit that they do not love holiness, they do not pray, they do not hate sin, they do not walk humbly with God. They stand in the same danger as these Corinthians, and Paul's warning applies to them, no less to the Corinthian readers of this epistle. There are millions of us. And again, I'll go back to whatever expert Billy Graham was on these things, and he would have claimed he did his whole ministry. 80% of churchgoers are lost. That's a huge percentage of people who may be sitting in this room today thinking, because I got wet when I was a kid, or because I show up to church on Sundays, or because I try really hard to be good, I must be a Christian. Who should take this test? Anyone who thinks that they're a Christian. Then he says, Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. So, what is this faith that we're testing? What's he talking about? I do not believe that Paul is saying, Test yourself today to see if you believe right now. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think this is what he's saying. I think he's saying if you trust in Christ at some point and you are being faithful to the Christian faith. Do you all understand that there is a Christian faith that is knowable and understandable? Y'all, Do you know that? So uh, we need to subdivide how we use the word faith. There's the faith that you exercise, that you believe in Christ. And then there's the Christian faith. And you don't get to determine that. Jesus Christ died on the cross, came back from the dead three days later, and he is the only way to get to heaven because of what he did on the cross. That's the Christian faith. There is a triune God. Not one God in three forms, a triune God. Three persons in one person. That's the Christian faith. So I think my personal belief here, and I think it matches up with the rest of the New Testament, is that he is asking us, are you in the knowable objective truths that make up Christianity? Now, some of you are thinking, well, I know a lot about Christianity, and I actually agree with most of Christianity. I must be a Christian. Well, Paul, James, Jesus, they're all going to make the argument, you can know a whole lot about God and not be any more godly than the person next to you. So somehow or another, there's this merger, this meeting of knowing things about God, the Christian faith, and living faithfully. Right? These objective truths, these theological beliefs, and what we would call moral, ethical behavior. That yes, I truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Lord of my life, He's the King of the universe, He can tell me to do whatever He wants me to do, and I am duty-obligated, bound to do what He tells me to do. And then actually doing that. One is intellectual assent, it's mentally agreeing with something. The other one is, I'm going to bend my will... To what God says is true, right, and holy. And Paul's asking us this question. Where are you on that spectrum? Not moment by moment. On a regular basis, consistently. Do you both believe truths about God that have been revealed to us in Scripture? And are you, are you bending yourself? Are you submitting yourself to what he says is true? That's the test that he's asking us to take here. Sam Storm said this way. He said, You're going to ask yourselves questions like this Is Jesus in you? That's very biblical, by the way. We kind of shy away from that, but that's a very biblical idea. Is Jesus in you? Now, here's the secondary part of that Are you in Jesus? Are you obeying him from fear or for love? Are you being transformed to look like Christ? Or are you entrenched in yourself? Are you sensitive to the teachings of God and all things? Or are you hardened against the demands of Jesus in your life? Are your beliefs governed by scripture or by personal likes and dislikes? That's a big one. What in you is defining why you're attracted to something? Why do I like that? Why do I feel like I need that in my life? Is everything in your life or all your decisions, do they just boil down to this is what I want? This is what I like? Or is there some check in your spirit, but what what does scripture say about that? What what has God told me about that? Do I elevate my opinions above God's? It's going to shock some of you. You know, God's not a Republican sorry right and he wasn't a Whig, and he wasn't a tory and he wasn't a communist and he wasn't any of that stuff but some of us have elevated our opinions above god have we not and we expect god to somehow conform to what i think is true about this world do i conform my opinions to god's opinions because he has opinions by the way Most important of all, who is Jesus to me? This is a big one. Do I accept Scripture's claim that He is God incarnate? That He lived a sinless life? That He died a substitutionary death? That He absorbed in Himself the wrath of God that I deserved? That He rose again bodily from the dead? Do I shape my life and recast my beliefs and formulate my choices to conform with the theological and ethical principles that Scripture demands? That's the test that he's asking us to take. I want you to remember this as you're thinking about this and we're taking this test today. Because he is asking you to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? I want you to remember who Paul was writing to in Second Corinthians, okay? What group of people, what were they like? What do we know about them? Because I think that kind of, it taints and, and puts a little bit of a different twist on what he's asking them to do. He wasn't writing to a group of people who were fervently walking in their faith. I'm sure some of them were, but that was going to be the minority there. They were still trying to figure everything out, to be honest. And that's why there's so much correction and discipline in these two letters that we have. So he's writing to this group of people, and they're not all just wrapped up in Christ and trying to figure out, quite frankly, the best possible way to live for him. They're struggling with that. They're not, he's not writing to these people who are fervently walking in their faith and then struggling occasionally with sin. Here's who he's writing to. People who were genuinely struggling to integrate Christianity into daily life. Corinth was an awful place. I don't even know what to liken it to in America. Las Vegas? Maybe we could say like being a Christian in Las Vegas. Or New York City. Or Miami. Something like that. This is very difficult place to live out the Christian tenets. And all of the culture around you argues against literally what you're trying to do. There's nothing in your culture that applauds what you're doing as a Christian. And these some of these people are like really trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? How do I live this Christian different holy life committed to one God in a culture that argues against that? So there's that group of people. Secondly, there are people who were kind of interested in Christianity. So they're in the church. They're kind of feeling around the outside edges of the church. They're trying to find their way. But having a really hard time, and they're, they really haven't committed themselves to Christ. They're, they're a little fascinated by what's going on in there, and maybe what they're seeing in people's lives, or what they're hearing from people's mouths. But they're just kind of interested. Then I think the third people group of people he's writing to were people who were attracted to the power and the message. They're attracted to God. They're attracted to Christ. They're attracted to the promises of Christianity and the change that it said it would bring. But here's the deal. They were unwilling to leave their old gods and their lifestyles. They wanted life, happiness, and meaning in their ways and with God's ways. This is the church that Paul's writing to. There's a small group of people who are really converted And they're struggling and wrestling with, how do we make this happen? There's another group of people who are interested, and they're kind of around. Then there's another group of people who are trying to marry their pagan culture with what they're hearing in church. And they want both things at the same time. And they think, if I can just keep indulging everything in my flesh that I want to do, and kind of attach Jesus to that, I'll get happiness. That's like the key to to satisfaction in life. So when he's telling them to take this test, he understands that 80-20 rule, that there's probably 80% of them who are in that congregation who are really not converted. And they might think they are. So that's who he's writing this text to. So we, we're hearing this test and we're like, man, this is a lot. I just wanted to come and sing a song this morning, you know, and maybe give something and just go home. So there's a whole lot we're talking about today, and I understand that. And, and most of us get I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but test anxiety. I had test anxiety. They didn't put me in a separate room. I had to take the stinking test, right? Now they put you in a separate room, and you get all the special accommodations, and you can pay people to take your test for you, right? Amen. Um, Zing. Um, We don't like tests. There's not a person in here who enjoys taking... Well, there's some... Sorry. There are some uh, weird people in here, Right? Who enjoy taking tests, our engineers are like, yes, give me a test to take. Most of us don't like taking tests. and We certainly don't like taking tests that have to do with who we are. And and a test that might end up in me having to change something. So we don't like this because this is difficult. Here's the other thing we don't like about this test. And this is, we wish it said this. It doesn't say, test your spouse. To see if they're in the faith. Test your neighbor, test your children. Test the person next to you. It says, test yourself. First person plural. God's with me. All right? We certainly don't like to take these tests. And he tells us to test ourselves. We would rather judge other people. And we would rather judge Scripture. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we rather sit back and tell Scripture what it should say to us? And what it should mean? We would rather sit back, judge others, judge the sermon, judge the pastor, judge the music, judge the air conditioning, judge the chairs. We would rather judge everything except look at ourselves. Scripture is the judge over us. Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ stand as the judge over us. So we need to listen to what they say. So it's difficult. Why is it so difficult? I'm going to give you several reasons. Scripture says why this kind of introspection is hard. Our hearts are deep. Our hearts are not a kiddie pool. Our hearts are deep, and they were created by God to investigate and to live for eternity and to deal with eternal issues. That's back in Ecclesiastes. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Our hearts are a deep well, a dark, deep place, and that makes introspection difficult because we don't even have the attention span, usually, to look look deep down inside of our hearts. So our hearts are deep. Our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah chapter 17. Even when I look inside me, I lie to me. I lie about who I am. I tell myself I'm somebody different. I tell myself that if I don't do that, I won't be what I think I need to be. My heart is deceitful. Our hearts are unknowable. That's another Jeremiah passage. I can't even know my own heart proverbs proverbs is so interesting we're going to get into proverbs in the the summer and spend about 10 weeks in it there's a character in the proverbs i don't know if you've ever read through them there's recurring characters in the proverbs one of them is the sluggard the lazy person why do i why is is self-examination hard because it's hard and i'm lazy i don't want to put the work in our hearts are emerging from the reign of sin Right? We are coming out of a kingdom of darkness where sin has ruled and reigned over us. And coming out of that is hard work. I still tend to bend the knee to sin. I still tend to bend the knee to my flesh. And I'm coming out of the reign of darkness in my life. Matthew chapter 15. Change is hard and change is scary. I think Hebrews chapter 3 says that to us. Change is hard and change is scary. It takes us into a place we've never been before. This when I was looking through this this image came to my head Our hearts aren't pointed toward true north. This is another reason why it's hard When somebody tells you to follow your heart, it's the worst advice anybody can give you run away. Okay Terrible advice Why because my heart's not pointed in the right place anyway My heart is like jack sparrow's compass (laughs) If some of you know the movie, right it points to what I want the most What do I want today? Well, that must be where I'm supposed to go because that's where my heart's pointed. Oh, tomorrow, over here, okay. And it's just spinning. Most of the times, it's just spinning in circles. And I don't know which way to go. Why is this kind of introspection difficult? Because my heart just is scattered in a million different directions. And it's difficult for me to get into it. And a lot of times, I want to hide what I'm most attracted to. So I don't even want to look at the compass because I know what it's about to tell me. So it's hard when we get into this kind of testing. How do we make it through this process? If it's so hard and so difficult and scary and we don't like it, how do we make it through? Look at the end of the, of the chapter, chapter 13, verse 14. He ends the whole book with this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's his encouragement after this hard book. It's a really hard book. And at the end of it, he points us to the grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I think the book is pushing us there. And he's like, while you're taking this test, remember remember this, that you have the love of Christ, right? The love of God, the grace of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Spirit. He wants us to kind of confess that in worship, even after all of our sin and all of our problems and all of our you know, mistakes and everything else. We need to confess with our heart and worship the God who loves us. The God who is gracious toward us. The Holy Spirit that lives in us. He wants us to confess that and worship Him. And then to remind us that we have power to live. He's not asking us to do something on our own, by ourselves. So how do we get into this? There's this test that we're supposed to take. He's driving us toward these places where we can kind of pull us through and encourage us to get through it. I think we see some things in these verses that might encourage us. Back in verse 11... It says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and the God of peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the the saints greet you. So I think he gets into some practical things that we can test. And I'm going to run through these, And, and then they come from Scripture, the whole testimony of Scripture, too. So here's one practical area: How do I know if I'm in the faith? How are you doing in Christian love? How are you doing in Christian love? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 kind of love. How are you doing in that? In your home, at work, in a difficult relationship? That person who is rude to you and they're ugly to you and they're cutting to you. The person who has hurt you most recently and maybe the most is your faith making a difference in your heart love toward that person and in how you practically daily love them. How do you know if you're in the faith? Is 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, the love that rules your heart at all times. Another one, practical, serving other people, Philippians chapter 2. Who are you serving? Well, my family. Okay, well, let's strip away the three, five, six people that live in your house. Who are you serving? Who are you sacrificing for? Who are you giving to and it's costing you like it might kill you. It feels like if I give any more of me here, I'm going to die. I am running out of things to give here. Is your faith making a difference in wanting to serve them and how you practice uh, practically daily serve them. I'll give you another one. Your attitude towards sin. Colossians chapter 3 Romans 6-8. through Do you actively entertain sin? Do you actively hide sinfulness and sinful actions? Do you nurture nurture sinful environments? Do you make excuses for your sins? Well, I'm better than I used to be. That's not as bad as some other sins. Do you plead the blood of Christ to make you clean today? 1 John. Are you at war with your sin to kill it wherever it appears? What is your attitude towards sin? Your sin. Not sin in general and not somebody else's sin. Your sin. How do you feel and how do you respond when you sin? Are you unmoved? Are you indifferent? Are you cold towards your sins? Do you consistently find ways to rationalize your sin and justify your sin? Do you see in scripture where it says that life is short and so you turn a blind eye towards sin so you can just enjoy life? Do you excuse yourself and think that's just how God made me or my life has been really hard or I'm better than I used to be? Once again, D.A. Carson says this, When a person is broken in spirit and contrite before the God of all justice, grace comes and pronounces absolution and grants confidence. But when a person is haughty and arrogant, unconscious of grace, or of any need for it, grace flees and a stern apostle warns him, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. What is your attitude towards sin? Your sin. Those are things that scripture says that we can test to see if we are in the faith. While we self-examine I said a second ago, God's pointing us toward these great things. He wants us to remember some things about God's grace and love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that I think are amazing. First of all, it says about Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The Old Testament word for grace is hen, like a female chicken. (laughs) Hen. And that word means beautiful. So I could technically look at Mindy and say, you're a hen. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And not mean it female chicken. Mean it Beautiful. There's an old Keith Green song, right? Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. And when I was 13 years old, I thought, well, that's dumb. And I'm 40-something years old now. You're never going to get the real age out of me, by the way. 40-something years old now. And I go, oh, my gosh, God, you are beautiful. Jesus really is beautiful. Well, what do you mean by that? How is he beautiful? Who he is. See, here's the deal, man. If you go to your spouse and you're like, hey, you're beautiful because you cook really well, that is not going to fly, guys. Okay? Don't do it. If I go to God and I tell him, you're good, you're beautiful, Lord, because you gave me a car. You're beautiful, Lord, because you gave me my stuff and my house and my kids and my job and my money. And there's something wrong with that. There's something just off about that. Jesus is beautiful. He's beautiful. Anything He does flows out of that beauty. But He's beautiful. What has He done for us out of that beauty? Died on the cross for us. He's working in creation. He's giving me breath. He's giving me salvation. Chapter 5 of this, of this book says that He died so that we could become the righteousness of God. Man, that's beautiful. In the New Testament, it's the action of God to redeem us when we're far away from Him. He places our sins on Christ. He gives us His righteousness. By grace you have been saved. That's beautiful. Specifically, what's He doing now? What is beautiful about what Jesus does today? He dwells in me today. He convicts me of my sins today. He gives me the power to overcome my sins today. Joy, satisfaction, repentance, transformed love. He's beautiful. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be in you. Second thing, the love of God. And we sing this song, man, and I just want to kind of go back and hit it. Aren't you glad that God loves us? Like, aren't you overwhelmed? Some of you are in here thinking God wants to have an intellectual debate with you. You're a peon, right? We're morons. God is not looking forward to your next big question. But he loves you more than you can ever comprehend. We should be just overwhelmed that God loves us. God loves us. And I'm going to say it. God, I'm going to do the Jerry Maguire thing. God loves us. God loves us. God loves us. You should be in a puddle of tears about the truth of God's love for you. So overwhelmed by that. Here's the good news. Like the best thing I can tell you today. We are not trying to coerce God into loving us. Like the Holy Spirit didn't have to come to God and say, listen, they're going to eat the apple, just so you know. Give them another chance. Just if you can find it in your heart to love them a little bit and let them try again. No one's manipulating God into showing us love. God loves us. It's who he is. It's what motivated him to send Jesus and to redeem the world in the first way. Some of us think, well, I'm not taking this test very well today. God obviously doesn't love me. Now, let me just show you. God knew who you were, and he he knew what you would do from eternity past, and he still chose to call you his son and daughter. He loves you. Be convinced of it. He doesn't love your worthiness. He is steadfast in his love. And listen, he's committed to act toward you in a loving way. And we should all thank our lucky stars for that. God is absolutely committed to acting toward you in a loving manner. You have never been loved like this before. No one can love you like this. No one will ever love you like God loves you in your rebellion and your stubborn pride and your arrogant disobedience and your obstinate refusal to live up and into what Christ is making you. And we can trust that His love is changing us and enabling us to pass the test. Listen, real love changes us. And God's love changes us more than any other kind of love. His love is changing you now. And as you think in your mind, I'm not doing well in this part of the test. I seem to be not doing well here. His love is enabling you to live up into that and to pass that part of the test. The Holy Spirit fellowships with us, assures us that while we're self-examining, He is ministering to us, feeding us, caring for us, maturing us, perfecting us, protecting us from destruction, empowering us, teaching us, disciplining us, counseling us. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And he fellowships with us. The Holy Spirit is reminding us. That, listen, I think this is what he whispers to me when I take this test. And I'm like, oh, I'm not doing really good right now. God started a good work in you. And I guarantee you that I'm going to finish it. That's from Second Corinthians also, chapter 1 and 2. God brought you into a relationship with him through Jesus. And I'm going to make sure you get home to him. He is fellowshipping with us, reminding us of that. Grace means you didn't save yourself and you can't unsave yourself. You're in, you're in. The problem is a lot of us think we're in and we're not in. We never were in. God is love and he can't stop loving his own. He cannot stop loving those who are redeemed. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers and he cannot unseal what he has already sealed. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. All of this, what he says here at the end, Paul's not like, you don't have God's love, let me give it to you. You don't have the grace of Jesus, let me give you some. You don't have the fellowship, I'm going to let you have a little bit today. He is reminding them that these things are true of who they are. They're true of what God is already doing in their lives and his unfailing work his unfailing commitment to the work that he's doing in them. I believe, I'm just going to say this, that verse 14 is Paul's attempt to preach the gospel to them again. And you've got to preach the gospel to yourself every day. The love of God is in me. The grace of Christ is in me. The Holy Spirit fellowships with me. I am screwing up the test bad today. God loves me. God's great. Jesus Christ's grace is in me. His beauty is working in my life, and the Holy Spirit's fellowshipping with me. You've got to preach the gospel to yourself. I have the ability to see and to enjoy Christ's beauty in my life and my salvation. I have the love of God in me, even though I struggle with sin. The Holy Spirit lives in me, reminding me of who I am and what Christ can do in me. So we're down here to the end and we're like, why should I even take this test, man? (laughs) Because I feel like I'm just going to fail it miserably. Why examine anything? Isn't this kind of risky that we should ask ourselves this question? So here we go. If you had your car and your little check engine light came on, would you take that on a cross-country trip? If you're in a Boeing 737, would you go on one right now? Would you take that trip right now? If you're buying a house, would you buy that house without an inspection? Your life and your heart and your eternity, I would say, are worth the exam for the journey? Will your heart survive the journey ahead? Are you in the faith, firmly settled, growing, preparing for the joys and the trials and the temptations that are ahead in your life? Are you in the faith at all? Here's what's cool about this test, okay? Here's what's cool about it. There is really nothing to fear when you take this test. You're like, well, what if I fail? There's still grace. First, you could come out on the back of this today and go, my faith is false. It's counterfeit. It's not real. I've never truly received the grace of Jesus on the cross. Not ever. That might be your conclusion and what the Holy Spirit's revealing to you today. Secondly, you might go, well, I just have a really weak faith. I know some things about God, and I really believe that I was saved at some point. I've trusted in Christ, but man, I'm not very mature at all. I'm a baby. And my life doesn't match up to what Christ told us, how he told us to live. So you may have a very weak faith. <laughs> Here's the one that I think might be the scariest. Your faith, your test comes back like a C minus. And it's just bland and boring and powerless because you really don't have anything that you're about to be tested in and evaluated for. And God sort of set you on the shelf because He can't use lukewarm things. He spits them out of His mouth. And He's just kind of set you aside. That'd be a cruddy evaluation to come to. But there's grace. There's grace. There's grace. No matter where you end up on the spectrum, how you land. Out of this examination, there's grace for you. Are you a Christian? Live like it. Are you not? Call out in sincerity, truth, faith, whatever it is, on the saving grace of Jesus. Are you lukewarm, boring, bland Christian? Call out to God for his forgiveness for the way you've wasted grace in your life. And ask him for the power to live anew in the life that he has for you. Don't fear this test. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by that. I don't look at a surgeon in May and this is not theoretical it's actual I don't look at a surgeon in May in fear because she might take out Mindy's kidney or draw a tic-tac-toe board on her back with a scalpel I look at her in hope because that scalpel even though it's the instrument of pain is the key to life examine yourself and see if you're in the faith don't fear the test that test may be the very thing that God gifts you with to show you whether or not you're in life or death. God wields the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit wields Scripture in love in order to potentially hurt me so that He can heal me. And it's the exam that precedes the surgery that has to happen grace actually changes this exam. Some of us are like, God, that's the scariest thing that I could do would be to take this exam. If you're living in grace, this is not a scary thing. It's not a frightening thing. This kind of self-exam doesn't have to quench our faith. It can be gasoline that's thrown on the fire of our faith. This allows us to sit back and go, wow, I'm really not living up to what Christ has told me to, to live up to. I'm not treasuring the things that Christ has told me to treasure. My will is still the same old, dead, gross, junky will that it was Five years ago, I want to live in the Holy Spirit power that God has for me. Thank you for letting me evaluate this, God, and then begin to work in me in this area so my faith grows anew and is fresh and is powerful. It allows us to gauge where God's working, to confess our shortcomings and our sins, to make adjustments where we need to, where we're sinning or falling short, and to step into the future knowing that the Holy Spirit is going to finish His good work in us. Aren't we glad we have that guarantee, which is what the Holy Spirit is, the seal and the guarantee of God. I will finish what I have begun in you, and we should all take great joy in that. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, let's pray these these prayers of examination. Pray them in your heart right now. Holy Spirit, look in me. And tell me, am I a Christian? Am I really a Christian? Really? So I'm not, I, I'm not asking you, because I don't think this is what the text is saying. I'm not saying were you saved once and not now. I'm saying was I ever really a believer, period. Ever. And maybe you just feel the weight of this today. And you're like, man, God, I've just been playing a game. I think I've been fooling my parents and this church and my pastor and my friends. I think I've been fooling you, but you've shown me this morning I never really trusted ever. I want to do it now. I recognize that I'm not in faith in Jesus, and I want to do it now. Just talk to Him. There's not a magic prayer. And if we've ever convinced you or told you otherwise, I would like to apologize for churches. There's not a magic prayer. You just talk to God. You talk to Him about your sin, you talk to Him about what He did on the cross. Talk to him about the forgiveness he has for you. Submit to his his lordship in your life, his rule. And he will be faithful to answer that prayer right now. Christian, this should be so convicting. This should be so convicting. Christian, are you living consistently with what you say you believe? How are you doing on your test? Is your heart changing? Your desires changing? Your choices? Your actions? Do you believe things in your head? And are they matching up with what you do? With your body? With your choices? With your money? With your time? God, let us examine ourselves. Let the Holy Spirit come in. Because our hearts are deep and deceitful. And we may not even come to the right conclusions, Lord. So let your Holy Spirit come in and examine us right now teach us about who we are, who we're not, who you are, the plans you have for us. Thanks for the Holy Spirit, God, that even as we struggle and even as we uh, uh, have uh, our hearts and our wills not subject to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus, that God, your spirit is working and moving us to look like Christ. We're trusting in that. Let us examine ourselves with honesty and with supernatural clarity. God, if there's someone in here today who doesn't know you, they're lost. They've never been saved. They've played the church game their whole lives. Save them right now. Save them right now. Don't let them leave this place lying to themselves, convincing themselves they're something they're not. Save them. I'm just going to ask you this. If, if you feel like the Spirit's working in you and He's telling you you're not really a Christian, You're playing a game. He's convicting you right now. There's a white card probably in the back of your pew or the back of your chair or inside your worship guide. Before you leave today, would you just write me a note, put your name on there and say, I think I need to ask Christ in my heart or "I, I submitted to that today or I'd like to talk to you more about that. I would love to know that. You can put it in the offering plate or put it in the box at the back. Father, speak to us. Save those that need to be saved. Help us to pass these tests, self-examination, relying on your grace, no matter what the outcome. In your name we pray, amen.